Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Share the Load, hosted by myself, Mia Schachter, and engineered by my pal, Pete Ziarto. That's me. Hi, Mia. Hi, Pete. Can you tell listeners what Share the Load is all about? Share the Load is about the division of labor in relationships. So that's all kinds of labor, like emotional labor, domestic, financial, and other kinds of labor, and all of your relationships. So your friendships, your family, your coworkers, and your romantic relationships. Sounds like you put a lot of effort into it. And that's a lot of good info for everybody to listen to. So they should check it out and go to patreon.com slash share the load. And I hear there are multiple subscriber levels of support. That's right. There are several subscriber levels. The $10 level, for example, includes a shout out to your own product, show, or offering on the next two episodes and one monthly 10-minute over-the-phone boundary guidance session with me. And to see the rest of the tiers that Mia talks about, check out patreon.com slash share the load. And how else can the listeners support the show, Mia? Listeners can write a review on Apple Podcasts, post about it on social media, and share it with friends. Very cool. Well, let's start the show. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Mia Schachter. I'm an intimacy coordinator for film, TV, and theater, and a writer and educator in Los Angeles. Today I'm talking to Michael Ian Black, a comedian, actor, and author. Do you have formative memories from your childhood of uh, kind of learning about being a boy and what it was gonna mean to be a man? Well, I was raised in a lesbian household. My parents divorced when I was five, and uh, my, I grew up with my mom and her partner, primarily, um, I saw my dad on the weekends, every other weekend, and then until he died uh, when I was 12. So in terms of like formative memories of like learning how to be a boy or what, what I thought it would be like to be a man, I don't really have those memories specifically where I was conscious of gender and what I thought masculinity was like. I do remember growing up and feeling a lack of knowing what it was without ever really being able to put my finger on that, without ever really being able to say, I wonder what manhood is like. But I think every, I'm speaking specifically now about boys, I think every boy probably grows up looking towards um, men in their lives as role models, uh, or at the very least as, as models, if not necessarily role models, to understand what it is we're supposed to be. I'm sure girls do that too, um, but when we think about single parenthood, for example, or single gender parenthood, generally what comes to mind is women raising children, not men raising children by themselves. Obviously there's exceptions to that. But as a boy growing up, I just, I didn't, I, I did feel a, 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 a real lack of that in my life. My dad was kind of distant, not, 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 not intentionally, but I think he didn't really know how to be a good 
um, I don't want to say a good dad, but he didn't really, he didn't really know how to relate to kids, I think because of how he was raised. Um, and so by the time he was starting to kind of open up a little bit to my brother and myself and my younger sister uh, was the end of his life. And so we didn't really have that. That was a long winded answer. No, that was, but, but so specific. I, I wonder, do you have, um, like, was he kind of a model of, of healthy masculinity or did you find, well, I'll just put it that way. It's, it's a, it's a complicated question in some ways. Yes. In some ways, no, he was, um, I think generally kind and, um, where I feel like he wasn't necessarily a good model is he was so reserved emotionally and so um, withdrawn, I think, emotionally that he exhibited a lot of classic male behaviors that, that I think boys and men need to get past, which is that emotional stoicism that doesn't allow themselves to be vulnerable and doesn't allow themselves um, to, sh to be vulnerable emotionally and therefore show their, their others around them that vulnerability can be a strength in a lot of ways. Yeah. Did you, um, I mean, this is a perhaps even more complicated question, but, you know, we all have masculine and feminine energies. Did you get any models of masculinity from your mom and stepmom? Like, can you kind of point to learning that well, maybe there? They both had a lot of anger towards men. Um, did it cross the line into misinjury? <laughs> At times, yeah. 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 Um, they both were like, considered themselves to be ardent feminists. And I grew up then, I think, misunderstanding what feminism was. And I think they misunderstood what feminism was. I think they both had a lot of anger um, that ended up getting directed towards men. Some of it, I'm sure, justified, some of it not. But there were three boys growing up in that household because my, my mom's partner had a son. And I think they unwittingly passed on the message that men were just generally dicks to us. Um, and they didn't, there wasn't a lot of like, they, they didn't point to, to a lot of men and, and have anything good to say about them. Um, and because I was so defensive about their relationship growing up, because I wanted to defend my mom primarily. Um, like to other people? To other people. And, and you know, and, and at a time when that kind of relationship was certainly not looked kindly upon, um, I internalized a lot of those messages that she and her partner were putting out there. And I grew up wary of men as well. I grew up um, mistrusting men and maybe over-trusting women, just as in sort of broad categories. And consequently, like, 
you know, I may have had a mistrust of myself at times. Yeah, that's what was coming to mind for me. I was going to ask you how, maybe when, and also how you kind of started to unlearn those negative feelings about about men. I probably started unlearning it. I mean, it took me a long time. A lot of it, ha- a lot of it was unconscious work that I was doing, um, and it came out in my comedy a lot, where I would talk about gender stuff in comedy without even really being aware that I was doing it. Um, sometimes that was sort of mixed up with sexuality and like, um, you know, I had jokes about people forever thinking that I'm gay because of, and that was, that was tied into sort of choices that I made as a boy and, and adolescent and young man um, in terms of the way I presented myself, walked, talked, that I, I don't think I was doing consciously, but I think I did it as a way of distancing myself from traditional masculinity to say like, I'm not like those guys. But I don't think I consciously started thinking about this stuff well into my thirties or maybe even my early forties. Was that because you had kids? Yeah, I think it was because I had a son. I mean, I had, I mean, my first child is a son. My first child is a boy and my second is a daughter. And I think parenthood forced me to really confront ideas that I had about myself specifically and gender more broadly. So as a Because I didn't want to raise a sissy, you know what I mean? I did yeah, not. yeah. None of us do. Yeah. Um, so how did you, I wonder if this is something that you kind of, did you discuss this with Martha? Like how you wanted to kind of impart information about what it was going to mean um, to your kids about, well, to your son about being a boy, but also I think to your daughter about, you know, what it means to be a girl and she's allowed to do and welcome to do all the same things and, and all of that. We did have some of those conversations, but not as granularly as I would have them now. Hmm. Like I think we both had, I think fairly, progressive notions in our heads of the kinds of parents we would be, which would encompass in the case of our daughter, um, you know, sending her positive messaging about all the things that she could be. But I don't think that we had the intelligence to recognize that boys also need messaging geared to them. I don't think we understood that. And that messaging in some ways is similar to the messaging that I think is important for girls. When we talk about girls being and doing everything that they can be um, and doing all the things that they can do, we generally think of it in terms of um, like the professional sphere or we, 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 the, the message of empowerment is about independence and um, strength and making your own way in the world, which is a kind of similar message that um, my mom was advocating for 40 years ago. And that's an important message. And it's a message that I think has been well received by girls and women and even men to a large extent in the culture, not to a full extent, but to a large extent. That conversation has been well underway now for 40, 50, 60 years. And it's a, it's a good conversation to have had and to continue to have. But the conversation around boys is similar in the sense that boys can be everything 
that they can be and do all the things that they want to do from a more um, uh, emotional and human way. And boys don't receive that message. Boys are still receiving the message of traditional masculinity, which is the model that, you know, I think my dad was brought up with, which is you can be anything you want to be in the world professionally, but personally, you can't. Personally, you're confined to a pretty narrow band of emotions and, and a pretty narrow band of being. Yeah. And that's a message that I didn't understand that I needed to impart to my son. Hmm. I, you're making me think of um, something that has, has come up a lot for me as I've gotten more into this like ongoing practice of consent is that it's, it's really easy to find information about um, you know, for women saying that like, this is how you state your boundaries and this is how you advocate for yourself and say no when you want to say no and so on and so forth. But what we easily forget about is that we also, we have to get consent from men. And mm -hmm. it's, it's so easy like to forget that it goes the other way because there's so much messaging about how men are pushing for sex and men are pushing women past their limits and their boundaries. Um, but that, we it's we don't then remember all the time that we also have to ask is it okay to touch you here do you like this and um i mean at least in a in a sexual scenario but even in a personal scenario i think it's really easy to think that kind of the way to be a feminist is to act like men um how men have historically been taught to act um and that's something that i think we need to debunk as well um and you also we're talking about um, like learning, you know, internalizing this hatred of men. I think for a lot of this, this article that you wrote about, about school shootings and how they're almost always boys, I think there's, there's kind of like two ways to breed that kind of mentality that we see amongst shooters. Um, and one is that you are, you know, the most important and you get to do whatever you want. And then we end up with incels. Right. But then there's also a way to breed that by instilling like insecurity and hatred of men. And that can also result in the same thing. Um, but what's amazing about the way that you internalize that is that it then kind of prompted you to do the kind of self interrogation and self-examination to, to undo that and not go, you know, to go in the other direction. Yeah, there's a lot in what you just said. The first, the first thing about consent, I would even take it a step further from what you said and say one of the challenges with the male of our species is we have to understand that we need and should get consent from ourselves. So that messaging about men need to be sexually aggressive and men um, always want sex and everything else, that's as much a story that's told to us uh, as we tell it to the world. Meaning, like I think a lot of times men seek sex because that's what we've been told we want, when really what we want is intimacy. Yeah. Um, really what we want is some place to place our emotional baggage and say, can you be with me now? 
can you can can I be vulnerable with you? And and the way that we're taught to express that primarily is through sex. So yeah, I think dudes are horny, and I think some of that probably is biological. But I think a lot of it is also it's an acceptable quote unquote outlet for us mm-hmm. in in a way that um, just being uh, open and vulnerable is not. Sex is a way that we can be open without being open at times, you know, that's one way. Um, as far as shooters go, I would hesitate to say what causes it or what doesn't cause it. I don't know. I do think there's something in what you said about it being a manifestation of men, some men, believing that they are more important um, than anybody or anything else. And one of the things that I would point out is that the shooters are not only almost always men, they're almost always white men. Mm -hmm. And I think- Almost always mentally- like really of course, mentally, uh, yeah. Of course, and you would have to be, and right. um, and uh, also all, almost always have domestic violence in their background. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what's interesting about the white aspect of it is there is, I think, I suspect there is something about white privilege that plays into these shootings because it's. It's such an affront to the self when you don't feel valued or respected. And then you compound that with this privilege, again, which I think is probably subconscious for most of these dudes. And it feels like the only way that they can be heard is to lash out in the most spectacular way imaginable. Mm -hmm. I think there's something in there um, that relates to specifically to white privilege, but I don't, I would be loath to say too much more about it. Well, I think what you said that they're, that they want to be valued or respected. It's, it's not just that they want to be, it's that they kind of were, have been taught always that they would be and that they wouldn't really have to work for that. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it feels like a birthright to them. And so when that, they don't that they've gotten what they deserve by birthright. There's a lot of ways to lash out and to blame others for that. Right. Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, that's a big thing that we're seeing kind of shift, this shift of, of power right now that is making a lot of people feel like, um, you know, that they're suddenly being disenfranchised or or, you know, they suddenly have to, work just as hard as other people um, to kind of get get to the same place and um, you know it's like the like the earth is quaking beneath them they they just the the messaging is that they would always have it that it would come naturally um, and now there's something of a like they're they're feel white men I think are feeling this um, kind of scarcity that Mm -hmm. if someone you know if if they see someone else get a job that they want that that means that it's been taken directly from them Um, 
right. as other people make gains in the culture, right. women, uh, anybody that has historically been less franchised, let's say, yeah. a man who has had all, all the franchise, um, as they see, we see other people moving into positions of power and authority that we once felt like were ours, um, of course, that's going to cause a lot of anxiety and resentment in people. Um, and so rather than examining their own um, deservedness, I guess is the word, mm -hmm. for, those, for those positions, it's much easier to, to lash out and say, well, it's not that they're as good or better than me. It's that they're being, you know, pushed to the front of the line. Um, they're being given something that I had, and you know, that's not it's not true, or that I deserved, um, and that's not true. But I understand, I really do understand, and have some sympathy for those guys. It's not their fault that they were brought into a world in which they believed that something was destined for them. Yeah. And when that doesn't come to pass, I understand why you might have anger and resentment towards other people who you feel like by, by your history uh, and the history of the place in which you were raised, that they are less deserving than you. I understand that. But, it, but what it requires, it requires a lot of self-examination to move past that. Um, and I think a lot of guys, frankly, aren't willing to have that conversation with themselves or with others because it's easier to be angry. And incidentally, anger is, is one of the other acceptable emotional outlets for men right. than it is to understand those feelings of insecurity and vulnerability that that you might find yourself experiencing because because secretly you believe you aren't good enough mm -hmm. and secretly you might believe you don't deserve what you thought was yours. That's tough. To, that's tough to deal with. Yeah. And also not, you know, boys and men are, are mostly taught not to seek help. And, yeah. and if you're struggling with those kinds of things and insecurity, you know, it, the last thing you want to do is go, talk to somebody about it yes. and much less pay for it. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, this makes me think of something actually from your podcast that really stuck with me that you said about um, how we might need to be willing to accept and even like promote and celebrate mediocrity from um, you know, more than just the people who've been allowed to be mediocre for the rest, for all of history. Do you remember that? Yeah. Um, I, what I was probably saying is we tend to look towards the exceptional person as evidence that, let's say, sexism doesn't exist or racism doesn't exist. You know, the obvious example is Barack Obama. You'd go, well, how could we'd be a racist culture if we elected a black dude to be president. But in saying that, what it allows you to do 
is dismiss the tens of millions, hundreds of millions of black men who weren't elected president, who weren't <laughs> given, who didn't have the same uh, extraordinary gifts that Barack Obama has. And so when I say we need to celebrate the mediocre, I'm saying we need to look at everybody and most of us exist right just <laughs> in the swell of mediocrity that right. most people exist in. Um, and say like, you're good enough just because you're a person and a human with average intelligence and average capabilities and- And an average education. You're just an average person and that's good enough. Right. Which means, you know, the average girl is good enough, the average black dude is girl good enough, the average black woman is good enough, the average Native American is good enough, like we're all good enough. And so that pool of opportunities that has, been populated with mediocre white dudes, mm -hmm. um, that pool has to accommodate a lot more mediocre people. <laughs> right. Well, I, I thought about it um, kind of more in terms of like the, any, any like art, you know, any, any art form where we have been celebrating mediocre white dudes for so long, like, you know, how many mediocre TV shows about white people written <laughs> by white dudes have we been like, yeah, you know, it's like a pretty good sitcom. I would sit mm -hmm. down and watch it. But then at least white people are not willing to watch the mediocre show about a black family or the mediocre show about a Latinx family. And, and so I was hearing what you said, thinking like, yeah, let's, let's embrace the mediocre because it's, you know, we, not every show needs to be like the Sopranos or the wire or whatever these incredible shows are in order to entertain us. But it does, it does seem pretty clear that white people at large, we are not, usually willing to spend our time with mediocre shows about people who don't look like us. Yeah, well, so I'm, I'm gonna transpose that onto people in general and say okay. that's exactly right. So I grew up watching The Brady Bunch, which is not even a mediocre show, it's just bad. <laughs> um, but I don't know that I would have been willing to give the black Brady Bunch that mm. same chance. So can I then transpose that to people and say, I've put up with a lot of mediocre white people in my life. And would I be willing, let's say as an employer, right. to put up with the same mediocrity in a Latina, in, you know, a black person? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But, but we can, I think we're inherently less forgiving um, as white people. Yeah, I think that's our implicit bias that we need to interrogate constantly. Yeah. And I think like the language around like microaggressions and um, an implicit bias and all the studies being done on that are, are, are like now kind of in the vernacular and like we were all aware of that now and I think actively challenging that. Um, but of course we can always get better at that. I, I think about that as far as like, uh, you know, what that, what that means to me is like, I, I want to make sure that I'm giving anyone 
that I can. I don't have a whole lot of power to to give, but like I want to make sure that when I'm um, sort of sharing that power, I'm being very careful to include not just like the most exceptional of people, but rather, you know, a, a wider range of people who who show interest and enthusiasm and a curiosity. Well, there's also ways, and look, I'm, uh, incidentally, anything that I'm saying is, <laughs> is, is entirely something that I struggle with as well. Yeah. I definitely, you know, in terms of all of this stuff. Um, but I think what, one of the things that I'm learning as I get older is that while most people, the vast majority of people, and I include myself, uh, are mediocre. And, and I don't, and, and, and when I say mediocre, like, I don't say that with bias. Like, it's like, yeah, we're all like pretty much the same. That's a good thing. But we're also all capable of moments of extraordinary behavior. And we all do have gifts and we all do have strengths. Um, and we can find, we can find those extraordinary moments and that strength that we don't ourselves possess in others if we give people the chance to show it to us, which means creating supportive, nurturing environments for other people and, you know, holding, holding space for other people in ways that allows them to be strong and, and to have those extraordinary moments and also to allow them to fail and allow people to fuck up and, and, and learn from mistakes. And, you know, I think like from a like professional point of view, and I'm, I'm thinking in those terms right now, professionally, if we do that, like we allow people to be the best of themselves that they can be. At least that's my hope. And I think generally, I think generally people rise to the challenge when you, when you, allow them to. Yeah. Yeah. I think allowing mistakes to, I mean, that I think is something I've, I've certainly experienced feeling like I'm really not allowed to fuck up. And that of course makes me fuck up more. Yeah. Well, because your best work, anybody's best work is, is always going to be in a place of um, relaxation as opposed to tension. You know, if you're, if you're always on edge and you always feel tense, then you're much more likely, I think to screw up things than if you're, feeling secure in in the place that you, that you find yourself. Today's episode is brought to you by me. I teach boundary and consent classes on Zoom on a sliding scale. These offer a framework for us to practice the language of consent and find and communicate our own boundaries. I also do one-on-one -on -one sessions privately. I'll let Ophomia share her experience with you. Doing boundaries and consent work with Mia has been one of the most transformational experiences of my life. I remember when I began this work with her earlier this year, I was terrified. I didn't really know what to expect and I was scared that I was going to make a fool of myself. And I'm so glad that I went because it's nothing like that. One of the most powerful things Mia ever said to me was that doing this work gives you the ability to understand yourself and to then give the gift to others to not cross your boundary. And it's been so rewarding and so amazing and I've literally recommended her to everyone I know. She's a remarkable person and the work is so individualized that I truly believe that everyone can get something out of it. Thank you, Afomia, for that incredible recommendation. 
You can find the forms to register for class or book a private session through the link in my bio on Instagram at Mia Schachter. And on with the show. It sets a foundation for us to be better people if we don't feel like the the earth is going to move beneath us. Like it's a lot easier when you feel that security to actually act in a way that you're proud of, you know, not out of stress or panic or desperation. Well, and then think about like, you know, I'll use the, I'll use um, the example of a writer's room for television. If you are the only woman walking into an all male writer's room, of course you're going to notice that. And of course you're going to feel like you're on display much more than the seventh random white dude who's sitting around that table. Right. But, you know, that's going to create tension. You know, you, you, so, you know, you're walking in there as a writer, just as good as the other writers who are sitting there, but suddenly you can't allow yourself to be the average in that room. You feel like you have to be better than, and so when we talk about celebrating mediocrity, it's like, yeah, celebrate like your position in that group of your peers. You're right there. You're right. like on the same plane as those dudes. But when you walk in there, because you're the only woman, because you feel like there's a spotlight on you, you feel like you have to be better than. And that's automatically going to create tension and a, a space where you feel like you can't fuck up. Well, it's also, you know, there's, it's going to make people feel like they have to, they have something to prove constantly. Mm-hmm. And that is, as we all know, incredibly unappealing to other people, you know, when you sit there constantly trying to prove how funny you are, and especially in comedy for women feeling like they have to show everyone at all times how clever and funny and witty they are. Um, And, you know, that's, that's super unattractive. I mean, that comes off, I think, especially for women as desperate, needy, you -hmm. know, um, insecure, all those things. Right. But think about how different it would be if, like, let's say it was, half male, half female, for mm-hmm. example, walk into that writer's room and suddenly you just don't feel like you're on display anymore. Right. In, in I remember, I feel like it only, I, mean, I feel like it literally only happened once where I was the only male on a comedy show. Whoa. Like performing that, that evening. Mm-hmm. And feeling like all of a sudden conscious of my own sex yeah. in a way that I really hadn't been before and finding it very easy in that moment to understand something of what it's like to be a woman Mm. in comedy when you know generally if you have a a a show at most there's one woman on the bill at most um and just sort of getting a glimpse into what that must be like on a on a daily basis for women did it make you feel that you had to prove anything yeah what did you feel like you had to prove? I felt like I had to be funnier that night. Mm. Mm. Um, and I talked about it on stage. Cool. I feel like, I mean, I just was, my immediate reaction was that I wondered if you um, felt that you had to prove that you were like, um, you know, feminist enough to be there or something like that. No, maybe because... I just, maybe I arrogantly take it for mm. granted that if people know me at all, like they <laughs> probably have a sense that like, you know, at the very least I'm, I don't even like this word, but an ally. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's so, that's amazing that that only happened once. I think it's only happened once, yeah. Wow. So, all right. So as a, as a dad, um, are there like moments that come to mind about kind of specifically dealing with, uh, I don't know, either like a moment where you felt like you fucked up around kind of teaching your kids about their responsibility and, um, and their gender or a moment where you were like, oh, wow, I think I did a pretty good job with this. One of the things that immediately comes to mind is when my kids were little, my wife and I both went out of our ways to make sure they had um, toys that were, in my son's case, traditionally considered more for girls and in my daughter's case, traditionally considered more for boys. And one of the things that really struck us both was how both kids immediately gravitated to the traditionally gender specific toys. My son immediately went to trains and trucks and cars and my daughter immediately went to dolls and little furniture and, you know, little things that, that were adorable. And I remember feeling like in some respects, wait, did we screw this up somehow? Like, did we somehow fuck this up? Um, And I don't think so. I mean, I think, I think those, gender norms probably exist for a reason in the sense that, and I don't know what those reasons are, but I think boys probably do, probably do gravitate more towards those things in general. Mm -hmm. But in making those things available for my son, if he had chosen to play with dolls more, I'm glad he at least had the ability to do that. We had little costume bins and, you know, if he had wanted to wear princess costumes and tutus, he had those at his disposal. He didn't choose to. Um, I don't know how much of that is reinforced subconsciously by us as parents, despite our best intentions. I, I, it makes, I have to believe some part of it, even for very, very young children is culturally reinforced. Um, but we, we tried our best not to do that. In terms of fucking up, as they got older, I definitely felt like, and continue to feel like, despite what I say and to my son, and specifically to my son right now, not because it doesn't apply as, as well to my daughter, about um, this topic. What's more important than what I say is what I model, and my whole life I've struggled to I've struggled with the same issues my dad had in terms of being emotionally open and available Um, and that really took me into my 40s before I was I feel like taking any steps forward in that direction positive steps forward and you know with boys in particular that behavior is so deeply ingrained by the culture that if you want to challenge it, you really have to model it as a parent. Mm -hmm. And I haven't to the extent that I wish I had. Um, So I do regret that. And I have, I think I've spoken to him about it. I might not have, Um, but I did write a book about it, which he has yet to read. (laughs) 
Do you think he'll read it? No. 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 Why would he? <laughs> it's like only a minor accomplishment for a life. A whole book. <laughs> um, and then do you feel so something that came up recently when I was talking to someone on a previous episode was this idea that we tell girls like even though you're a girl, you can blah 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 blah. And how just that sort of qualifier is um, can be damaging because it's kind of drawing attention to the fact that you're different or less than um, or that there's going to be some kind of struggle that you're going to need to kind of fight. Um, have you come across that at all with your kids? With my daughter? Yeah. I don't think so. I think I was much better prepared in some ways to raise a girl than I was to raise a boy. Hmm. Um, again, I think largely because of my upbringing. I think I had more confidence. I've always had more confidence around girls. Um, I don't mean like sexually. I mean like just, I, f I feel like I've been able to be myself better around girls. And I think that message, the messaging of like, you can be anything like it. I think it's so deeply ingrained in me in terms of my relationships with women that I think I would, I think I did a better job of modeling that for my daughter um, than, uh, than modeling like emotional availability for my son. Hmm. Uh, it's just something that's just, I think really deeply encoded in my DNA because of how I just was brought up. Um, so I, I don't think so. I, I mean, I see my daughter being a, a pretty prepossessed young person who uh, it would, it would, it would surprise me if, if she expressed that she felt like she had limitations based on gender. And I remember being oddly heartened when the movie Wonder Woman came out because it was, you know, it was seen as like such this kind of feminist rallying cry. And I remember, I remember when my daughter didn't really express any interest in it, that I felt pretty heartened. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> like, you don't feel this keen need to see this. Just because it's a woman. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, yeah, go see Wonder Woman. I, was like, mm, I don't care. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Right, <laughs> that it's maybe, maybe not such a big deal. Right. That it's a movie with a woman superhero. Yeah. Um, you also, you know, you're, you're saying that you haven't modeled this emotional vulnerability or availability, but I did just reread that article and you said that you were getting shit on by trolls for being a soy boy. Mm -hmm. So, so someone thinks you're being emotionally vulnerable. Well, I think when I talk about these issues at all, yeah, that can be really triggering for some guys. Mm -hmm. Um, and I can, I can talk about it intellectually in a way that I'm not always able to model myself personally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, they'll interpret me advocating for feminism or advocating for boys and interpret that as being a cuck, you know, a, yeah. a beta male in some way. And I expect that. I expect when that happens. Um, just because it's online culture and troll culture. And of course people are going to say that, but what's been, what's been nice is that I have found 
a much more receptive audience to this message than I would have expected when I started talking about it publicly. That's actually been really nice and, and somewhat surprising because yeah, of course you're going to get trolls, but it hasn't been nearly as bad as I would have anticipated. Wow. That is, that is rather heartening. That's, I'm glad to hear that. I think that there's been kind of a shift academically, um, you know, things used to, like we used to call it feminist studies or women's studies, and now it's gender studies. And there mm-hmm. is a movement within academia to start also examining masculinity and, and how we teach that and how our society promotes certain ways of expressing that and how to unlearn, um, you know, really harmful behaviors that are not just harmful to other people, but harmful to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I've been really kind of heartened to see that, um, that, you know, feminism is, is about examining all forms of oppression and, and it includes the ways that we teach men to be men mm-hmm. and the way that historically that has meant teaching men to be oppressors. Mm-hmm. That's damaging to men as well. Yeah, and we we oppress as men others, and we oppress ourselves as men. Mm-hmm. You know, the message just it, it, it's just not traditional masculinity is just not a message that's working very well anymore. Right. And I don't know that it ever did, but it certainly worked for men at the very least better than it's working for men right now. So at the very least, from a purely pragmatic point of view, like men really have to, we have to look at ourselves and understand, like we need to adapt um, because we're falling behind. Mm. Um, And one way to adapt and one way to help ourselves is to look to the model that the last 50, 60 years of feminism has established like women have done amazing work on women and on the culture and you know as we historically do we 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 should you know steal that work like we should we should be right there like piggybacking right on that work yeah and applying it to ourselves um not to not not in opposition to feminism but in concert with it and you can you can lump you can you can put it all under the umbrella of feminism, but I think because that that term is so loaded for a lot of men, um, that I would say let's work with it, yeah, not opposed to it, and cite it if you use it. You can steal <laughs> it, but just cite, cite it. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do. If it's not uncomfortable for you, I have a quote from that article that really struck me that I would like to read because I think it kind of wraps this up really nicely. Okay. So you wrote, but to even admit our terror is to be reduced because we don't have a model of masculinity that allows for fear or grief or tenderness or the day-to-day sadness that sometimes overtakes us all. That really hit me because it's, it's kind of, um, I don't know that we, I don't, we still don't have a model. We don't have a model. Um, But I, I don't, um, I don't expect there to be one for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I I say that 
not, I say that actually optimistically because what has changed for me since I wrote that article or what, what I've observed changing for me since I wrote that article now a year and almost a half ago is um, this conversation that you and I are having is a conversation that I feel like I wasn't a part of and wasn't even really aware of a year and a half ago. If those conversations were happening in the culture, I didn't know about them. Um, I'm sure they were, but I didn't know about them. But I'm heartened that it seems like that conversation seems to be seeping into the mainstream more and more and more. And while we don't have what I would consider to be a model right now, I think, I think it's coming and I think we need only to look at the way um, the role of women has been redefined over the last generation to understand that it, change is possible and perhaps even inevitable for men and that the way masculinity will look on the other side of the next 20 years I think it's going to be a lot better than the way it looks right now. And certainly the way it looked for my dad's generation and the generations that came before. Mm. Yeah. I think there, there's kind of no way that that's not true, you know? Well, it has to be because right. I mean, the alternative is, um, is that men wither and die. I mean, the alternative yeah. is that we, you know, just go, we, you know, it turns into a single sex society and women yeah. are just by themselves because men, men have to figure out how to function in this culture. Um, right. We just don't have a choice. And the, only, and, the, and the only viable path forward is one of inclusiveness, tolerance, and emotional availability. It's just the only path forward for men. Right, right. Okay, well... To wrap up, um, can you uh, name three people or experiences or pieces of media that have been formative for you and that you feel have kind of brought you to exactly this moment in your life for this way of thinking? Uh, yeah. Okay, so I'll start with the silly one. I think has actually been somewhat important in a weird way is um, when I was growing up, one of the TV shows that we used to watch fairly regularly in reruns, mostly, but sometimes when it was on, was MASH. And Alan Alda became this like odd sex symbol in the 1970s. Um, and he was sort of like the new man. But I think Alan Alda, like, as a guy, really modeled, at least on screen, a lot of what I'm talking about. Like, a guy who seemed like a man, um, looked like a man, talked like a man, walked like a man, you know, was interested. He was a, he was a, a heterosexual dude. He, he was a horny dude, um, on MASH anyway. Um, not... You know, in, in ways now that we might think of as kind of leering, but at the time seemed sort of endearing and fun. 
But the thing that set him apart from a lot of the other sort of dudes in the popular culture was this emotional availability, a guy who could be really tender and cry and, and have long conversations and, and be candid and emotional and open. I think like seeing that role model um, was really important for me, even though I didn't understand it at the time. Um, that's one. Two, the guy that came to mind immediately, and I, I barely know him. I met him maybe once um, at a conference, but a guy who I found really impressive is a guy named Wade Davis, who's a former professional football player uh, who came out of the closet after he retired from the NFL and has spent his post-career, post-football career, talking about these issues and re like really going deep into them in a way that I, I have not. I, wish, I would only wish I had his depth of knowledge and intellect. Um, but talking to him the time, the one time that I met him, I found really amazing and, and impressive. Uh, he, he was, he, he's, he's a guy that I continue to pay a lot of attention to around all of this. And then finally, um, well, he turned me on to um, the writer Bell Hooks, mm -hmm. who I've been reading. Um, and she writes a lot about, I mean, I, I want to see if she calls herself this. I feel like she does. I feel like she calls herself a radical feminist. Uh, I don't know, um, but she's an academic and a, and a writer and a, and a really beautiful author and a professor and everything, she everything she has to say about all of this stuff is just so wise. Um, yeah, love and intimacy. She's mm -hmm. got a lot of that going on. And, you know, when, when, when I hear people speaking really truthfully and honestly, about all of these issues. It just, it just resonates so deeply with me, maybe because I, I felt so starved for this conversation for so long without even understanding that I needed it, you know? I had this hunger for these issues that I didn't, wasn't even fully aware of. Mm -hmm. um, because I think I felt, because it felt like such a personal struggle to me. And I didn't know that other people were, were writing and thinking about these issues. I knew that they were in terms of women, but not in terms of men. Um, and so to discover that other people like have really thought deeply about this stuff has been really nice for me and, and, and helpful for me in my own journey. Yeah. That's something so amazing about the internet. I think that we have gone from feeling that what we're experiencing is so deeply personal and individualized only to realize that, people all over the planet are having the same thoughts and problems. Yeah. Yeah. All, all of us mediocre people like trying yeah. our best. Right. Trying to, yeah, connect and figure it mm -hmm. all out. All right, Michael. Well, thank you so much. It was oh, really nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Where can people find you online? The best place is uh, Twitter. That's where I live most of the time at Michael Ian Black. It really ranges from really, really just dumb tweets to really, really annoying pedantic tweets. So you get, you get it all. You're also on, on Instagram. I am, but I barely post there. 
And that's almost always jokes on Instagram at Michael Ian Black. It's a lot of selfies. It is. <laughs> with dumb captions. All right, Michael. Thanks for doing this with me. My pleasure, Mia. Uh, so nice to see you. Right. You too. And I hope your your self-isolation is not driving you too crazy yet. It's been great. It's been a great quarantine so far. Cool. Glad to hear it. Same here. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. I'm on Instagram at Mia Schachter. There's two CHs in there. And you can follow the podcast at Share the Load Podcast. Special thanks to Pete Ziarto at Director Pete for recording, editing, and producing, to Tyler Field for the music, and Candice Play Goodman for the cover art. You can reach me with questions and comments at podcast at sharetheloadinc.com.